The word of the Lord from Mark chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That sounds pretty innocuous. The way Mark tells it, John sounds like the more colorful character of the two by far. He's out in the wilderness in that outfit of camel's hair and leather, eating locusts and wild honey. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and he's preaching that the Messiah is coming who will baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, on the other hand, he sounds like just some guy from Nazareth who schleps into line in order to be baptized with all the sinners who have gone to hear John. He's not a new act in the John the Baptist show across the Jordan, It's not like from then on, John's the opener for the main attraction. Jesus arrives, lines up like everybody else, and he gets baptized. Now, the Gospel of Mark is often overlooked because it is by far the shortest of the four Gospels. But that just means that every word counts. John is dressed in camel's hair and leather because that's what the prophet Elijah wore in the Old Testament. And since Malachi closes out the Old Testament declaring that a new Elijah will prepare the way just before the Messiah's arrival, John is going with this less than subtle visual cue that he is the new Elijah and the Christ is near. Locusts and wild honey don't show up together in the Old Testament, mostly because locusts destroy the trees where the hives might be found. Locusts are a plague, while honey is a sign of the promised land. John's lunch menu is pointing to death and life, curse and promise, law and gospel. It fits his sermon. To those sinners who desire repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and it sounds like there are a lot of them, He declares, After me comes he who is mightier than I, 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, says John, I am the new Elijah preparing the way for the Christ. And he has the power and authority to move you from death to life, from curse to promise. Everything John says and does is pointing to Jesus. And then Jesus arrives and apparently gets in line to be baptized. After the big buildup by John, it sounds like a stunning letdown. As if you've been waiting for hours to see some celebrity, only to find out that he drove by 15 minutes ago and he's on his way. By getting in line to be baptized, Jesus does not look like the Christ who has come to lead sinners out of darkness into light, out of death into life. He doesn't look like he's mightier than John the Baptist. He looks like he's just one more sinner in a crowd of sinners who needs to be baptized by John. Mark is kind enough, however, to point out that something happens when Jesus is baptized, something big, something dramatic. We read, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So the heavens don't just open in Mark, they're torn open. You only get that verb one other time in the Gospel of Mark. It's when Jesus dies and the temple curtain is torn in two, top to bottom. It's not a coincidence. Just like that curtain is torn irreparably to declare that God is not present in that temple anymore, so the heavens are torn open irreparably to declare that the way to heaven is open for sinners. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. John said that the Christ would baptize with the Holy Spirit, so it makes sense that the Holy Spirit arrives on Jesus. The Spirit descends like a dove. And the first time you run into a dove in Scripture is just after the flood, when the waters are receding and a dove brings an olive branch to Noah on the ark. It's an announcement that the land is emerging once again, that there is life and creation for Noah and his family after the water. As Jesus emerges from the water of the Jordan, there is now new life and creation for you. Finally, a voice from heaven declares, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That's the Father, of course. And so you might think it perfectly sensible that the Father would say that to the Son. He's pleased with the Son. But it's a little odd. Imagine for a moment that your son is a wunderkind who gets a PhD in physics by the time he's 16, collects a Nobel Prize by the time he's 21, and has a formula for cold fusion tucked away in his mind, and then he decides that with a ton of job offers coming his way, he's going to spend the rest of his life picking up after other people's dogs in their backyards. That's not where a father belts out, I am so pleased. 
That's where he might manage a week, well, as long as he's happy, while he's busy calculating how many scoops it's going to take to pay off that PhD. What happens at the Jordan is a far greater contrast. The only begotten Son of the Father, the omniscient and omnipotent second person of the Holy Trinity, he gets baptized like he's one of those wretched sinners who deserves his eternal wrath. For the Father to say that he's pleased with his development ought to stun you. In fact, the interaction between the Father and the Son is only the stunning one other time in the Gospels. It's when all the wretched sinners turn on Jesus and crucify him, and the Father by his silence says, I am not pleased with you. I have turned and forsaken you too. That's not a coincidence either. What does all of this mean? It means that the Christ has come to save sinners by taking their place. He gets in line to be baptized with sinners not just to appear relatable like a candidate having a donut at a diner. He gets in line to be identified with them. The great exchange has begun here, meaning that Jesus is taking away their sin and giving them his righteousness. Picture it this way if it helps. As all these sinners get into the water, their sins are washed off of them. When the righteous, sinless Son of God is baptized, all their sins are washed onto Him. He soaks up all their sin into Himself, along with all of its eternal curse. And He's going to bear those sins and those infirmities from there to the cross. This is why the heavens are torn open when Jesus is baptized. The day begins with one righteous Messiah among a horde of sinners. And when the Messiah is baptized and the Father looks down, he sees one sinner among a horde of righteous. And that's when he declares of the one bearing the sin, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. If that were all that Jesus' baptism is about, that would be quite a day. But it's about far more than that. Jesus' baptism sanctifies all water for baptism, by which I mean this. You weren't baptized by John in the Jordan when Jesus was baptized, because you weren't anywhere near being even a twinkle in anyone's eye. But when you were baptized... God the Father looked upon you and said, I see another righteous one, because Jesus soaked up all of your sin and carried it to the cross. Therefore, God the Father adds, For Jesus' sake, you are my beloved child, and with you I am well pleased. That's what God said at your baptism. That's what God says have baptized you right now. The problem is that it's so very difficult for you to believe it. For instance, you're tempted with this or that sin, and so you do it. Again, I don't know if it's because you find the sin seductive, or if you're afraid of what will happen if you don't do it, or if you're bored and can't think of anything better to do. But the fact is that you're just so accustomed to being a sinner. But that's not you anymore. 
You are a new creation in Christ, a beloved child of God. Sin is beneath you. You're free from all that. Sinning doesn't make sense. It's not who you are in Christ. You're baptized, but you keep forgetting your new identity, your new worth. Keep this in mind when you're being hounded by temptation. It is a good thing to remember God's law and to remember the wages of sin is death, so do that. Keep doing that because you need the lash of the law. But it's a far better thing to remember that you're a new creation in Christ, sanctified and strengthened by the Holy Spirit against temptation. In other words, it's a far better thing when tempted to hold to the truth that you are baptized. But you still sin because you find it hard to believe that you're a beloved holy child. Once you have a sin, you've got it on your conscience, and the guilt has got to be dealt with. The typical way to deal with guilt is to ignore it and occupy your mind with other things. Maybe you make up for the wrong by doing a lot of good things. Maybe you double down and keep doing the sin to prove to yourself that it's not that bad. From a therapeutic standpoint, it can take a lot of work to deal with the guilt of what you've done or what you failed to do to live with yourself. I would caution you, however, that after all that work, you can still never get rid of that guilt by yourself. It is most likely to return at the most inopportune time, namely when you're facing your own death. It's then that you're likely to connect death to your sin, to see that your good works cannot make up for your unholiness. It's then that sin and guilt become terrifying unless they are taken away. But here's the thing. They are. You're baptized. Christ soaked up all of that and took it to the cross. God regards you as his beloved child. It's not because you're cute or you've done well. You're not beloved because of you, but because Jesus hauled your sin away. Trust that Jesus has done so. That's the promise of baptism. Bear in mind that that faith is always under assault because the devil is always accusing. He's constantly taking any dirt he can dig up and thrashing you with it. It's not just that your conscience has some grime, but that you're always under spiritual attack by the accuser who first persuades you that sin is no big thing until you do it, then hounds you that it is so big a thing that it's unforgivable. But the accuser is also the father of lies. And when you are so tormented, the answer once again is, I am baptized. Jesus has taken your sin away. The only way the devil can be right about you is if you steal your sins back from Jesus, which is a silly thing to do when Jesus is happy to give you all sorts of eternally better things. Again, as a testimony to our frailty that it's easier to believe the devil's lies than God's truth, that God's truth is that your sins are washed away. It may be especially difficult to believe God's truth when confronted by death, which is why you want to confront the prospect of death long before you're forced to. 
That loss is so total and hideous that it appears there is no way to live through dying, and so all is lost. But again, the answer is that you are baptized. You've heard it in Romans 6. Jesus died because of your sin, and Jesus rose again. In baptism, he joins you to his death for your sin and to his resurrection. He's gone to the grave. Risen again, he promises that he will raise you too. That's why, by the way, our funeral right here makes such a big deal about holy baptism, even if it happened a century before one's death. Because it was by water and the word of the one who died was joined to Christ. Already at the font, death was defeated for you personally. If it is hard to believe that such a simple act of washing can accomplish such great and eternal life-giving things, remember that you know better than to go by appearances. At the Jordan, Jesus appeared to be one sinner among many, and as far as we know, only he and John knew anything greater was going on. At the font, the risen Christ defeats sin, death, and devil again, for there he shares his victory with you, includes you in it. Do not take this lightly, and do not be so foolish as to think that you have a free ticket to sin, for that would be to steal your iniquity back from Jesus and wear it instead of his righteousness. No, instead, look at the Jordan and wonder that the beloved Son of God takes the place of sinners so that, at the font, you might be a beloved child of God. In other words, rejoice always that you are baptized. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.